Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Fresh Exchange Podcast. Welcome, friends. We are going to be continuing in our companion planting conversation. But before that, I want to remind you that the new e-course that talks all about how to utilize companion planting within your garden is now live. So don't forget, you're going to want to check it out if you don't need a whole e-course. No worries. I also have a great resource guide that tells you all about companion planting. It has an incredible expanded companion planting chart, as well as over 25 other resources, including three different garden designs. If you need inspiration, ideas, anything like that, this is the place to check it out. So I will have the, the link in the show notes so you can check it out as you listen to today's episode, because you're going to be learning all about companion planting and the history. So let's get started. This has been really fun to put together for me. As I've told you guys before, like I kind of geek out about history. And when I started coordinating plant history with human history, I got even more excited because I think it's really fascinating to think about history through a seed. Like literally this tiny little thing grows something that has been around for centuries of human existence. And where there are humans, there are seeds because we need seeds in order to eat. And I think seeds are so powerful. And the more I dig into this, the more excited I have become. And so I wanted to share this history because it's so rich with just a lot of human history, but also like understanding how humans began to coexist with plants themselves. Because as you're going to learn in this podcast today, humans and plants weren't always, they we were hunter gatherers, right? And so 
when we started to adapt into a more modern human in various parts of the world, we started to learn how to live with plants, how plants could coexist with us in a way where we could utilize their natural way of existing as well to benefit a more stable food system where we wouldn't have to be hunting and gathering and be at the whims of the world, so to speak. And I think that's pretty cool. And that's basically how companion planting started. So we're going to go through this journey and we're going to start 12,000 years ago and end up here. And I'm going to do it quick and I am missing a lot of little details. There's so much more to this story. There is deep, deep levels of history. And also I found it interesting that there's a lot that isn't told. And I want to dig more into that personally, but... I, as I was going through putting all this information together in a way that would make sense to do this today, I was like realizing that there's a lot more to the story and I don't know if we have it all. And I think that's important to note in this and why don't we have it all? I always love asking that, but we're going to start in Oaxaca, Mexico in 12,000 years ago. So it has been completely determined that Mesoamerica, particularly Central America, was a main place that this idea of companion planting began. So like I said, we were hunter-gatherers and in that transition of becoming domesticated humans, so to speak, we had to learn how to create a planting model and a way of creating a stable food system. And so how we did that was these indigenous people of Mesoamerica, which would have been Oaxaca, Mexico, the Mayan people, all of that, for instance, they utilized, they started domesticating first uh, squash, which they predominantly used the squash. It was, it's not like squash, like we would have known now. They were utilizing it to make bowls. It had a really thick skin, so it would make bowls and utensils, and they use a hard shell for that. But the fruit itself or the, you know, the meat of it would was very bitter. They did consume the seeds and use the seeds and then used it to grow more. But what they found and they were noticing was that they that the squash and beans and maize were all, or corn as we know it now also it is that they were growing wildly together in this coexistence. And so they wanted to mimic nature itself by putting these three plants together that already had a communication, already had something. And why they did this was they realized that if they could put it into the ground where they wanted it and to grow it in a season that they wanted, then they could basically domesticate these vegetables that then would create a sustainable food system. And so it all began with these things. And so first we had squash that they brought in. And like I said, that was like 10,000 years ago. And then they added in what we now know as corn, or then it was wild maize that basically how it grew was like these it was like a grass with large pods with about 12 seeds. And then <laughs> this was done particularly by the Mayan people from what research I could find. And that was 9,000 years ago. And then they finally domesticated the common bean, which was a native plant at that point in Peruvian, in the Peruvian Andes. And they brought this in and they started utilizing it 
for the small seeds and pods, but then they later, and this was about 7,000 years ago, and then they later adapted it so it was better and more conducive to eating. Once they domesticated these plants, they learned to adapt them more for enjoying, you know, as actual food. So I just like was totally blown away by thinking about this 12,000 years ago, how they were adapting these things and passing this information to one another. Because this didn't just happen overnight. You know this. Like things in the garden take time, and to develop new plants takes a ton of time. So, one of the other things, once they had this like system that we now know as the three sisters model and agricultural technique, so to speak, it's very, very popular. They also were taking this system called, I'm not going to say it right, I'm pretty sure of it, but milpas that they contained more than just the three sisters. They also contained avocados, jicama, and other plants that were growing naturally in the environment that they domesticated with this basically food forest model. And they farmed that land with the milpas and then they, um, or meal, meal, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you'd say that. I, I'm not very good with language. Um, and then, <laughs> um, so forgive me, but over time, they would then let that space go fallow. And I love that concept because we don't do that often in our gardens. We don't allow a fallow period in our gardens other than I'll be, you know, winter, but it's not anything more than that. And, and so they would then let this space completely go fallow, go wild again and start a new plot of land. And, then they would allow it to rebuild and cycle through like this sort of a crop rotation, but in a larger scale, like longer periods of time. We'll get into crop rotation here. Fascinating stuff. But this then where they took this model of creating this food forest using and having the three sisters at the core, the three sisters then moved into the Americas through the Southwest and Southwest Native American and indigenous people. And then it came all the way further north. We're talking going to from the Southwest to the Great Lakes region and even to the Northeast. And it became um, this amazing system. But what was fascinating is, is that as it grew to these other areas and the three sisters model still held true and every single region. It didn't change and the, everyone could grow it. And it was actually the Iroquois people who named it the three sisters. And, but every single tribe and nation had a different, you know, name or legend that coordinated with the system of plants. And, but all of them basically said the same thing that they, these things grew together and they supported one another in a communal way and how we're stronger when we grow together, basically was the legend that they would tell. But of course we all know that how this came as, you know, part of a colonial America was, you know, early European settlers arrived in America, the Native American people welcomed them by teaching them about how to grow food, and they specifically taught them about the Three Sisters model. But the thing was, and we know the further history, uh, if you took American history, whether it was very heavily colonial or uh, not, 
depending on how you look at it, that story is for another day, (laughs) but, um, there's a lot of other history there, but that's how we now have known the three sisters model, which is the most widely understood and seen companion planting model. And it drives deep in North America, but, or in the Americas, sorry, not just North America, but now it is very prevalent in North America, but it wasn't just happening in America. And that's what I find so fascinating. And so this is 12,000, 10,000, 9,000, 7,000 years ago, you know, that we're seeing this happening. But then at the same time, all the way around the world where, you know, they don't have modern technology, they're completely different people. They, and they don't have airplanes. (laughs) Greeks and Romans, particularly the Greeks were then teaching the Romans about how to actually utilize companion planting within wine production they totally understood that like they they had priorities of wine right we get that but they were realizing that there are certain plants that didn't grow well specifically with the the grapevines like they would deter the growth of the grapevines such as cabbages and walnut trees and they were understanding some of the f- like forest models of like growing certain things over the root system there were all these things that they were seeing and then we also were seeing in China, these things happening there, they were growing mosquito ferns along with their rice to help enrich the soil. Um, and then of course in Africa, they very similarly, like the Mayans and Ohakan people, they were domesticating many of the crops using this, using nature as a guide, just the same. And they were doing this specifically with pearl millet and yams, for instance, Uh, They were utilizing a food forest model that they brought into farming in order to create a sustainable or a stable food system that would feed them better and more consistently in their conditions. And this was happening all over Africa. There's so many different climates and things like that. Africa is a huge country or continent, sorry. And so there are many, many different types of climates in this one continent, but they were still utilizing these systems amongst tribes there. And I think it's really interesting because particularly in Africa, because, you know, many of these practices ended up being disrupted in their evolution because, you know, Americans began the slave trade. And, you know, when they did that, the slaves then came into America and had to utilize models that were already in place. They couldn't necessarily utilize a lot of this. And this is where I'm saying there's a lot of gaps in the history because I really believe that if, you know, African people, West African people were coming to America, I know from some other history that I've read that, you know, women brought beans and and seeds and all of that braided into their hair coming to America. And I, I still don't fully capture mentally like the experience of what that must've been like and why they did that. I don't know if that's possible, but I do believe that they would have brought some of that knowledge and understanding with them. And when they were out in the fields working, that maybe in some way they did utilize these things. And I think this is where history fails us in this is where storytelling is so important is because I think that there probably was companion planting going on during this time 
that history hasn't provided to give us. And that's where like that interpersonal experience and conversation is what would give us that clearer picture. Because I have a really hard time believing that because once emancipation was granted, Black Americans began brilliantly challenging the systems that their owners have previously forced them to farm by. So there was a lot, this is where I think there was a lot of lost history because I think innovation was happening there in the fields, even if we weren't, we are not being privy to it. And because, you know, from there on, um, there was some of the most amazing innovation, uh, from people that were farming as, as black Americans and they were descendants from the slave trade in West Africa. And so I have to believe that they still carried this knowledge and this, just innate way of working with the earth. I mean, for instance, we, if you don't know, George Washington Carver himself was the inventor of many things, but one of them, two of them that we still utilize. And we're talking about regularly as, you know, people growing a garden is crop rotation and compost because he worked a lot in understanding nutrient value in the soil and how nitrogen played a huge part. And, he saw that a great way to rebuild our soil was just utilizing compost. And so this is where I say, like, and you you can go down the list, like there are so many influential black Americans who brought their knowledge into what we now know, both in the home garden, but also in farming in general. And that is an amazing episode to go through at some point. But I think that there just has to be a lot of lost history there because I dug for a long time and there isn't as much as I think there, there really is. And which is heartbreaking to me because I, I just, I think that the farming models that are now being practiced in so much of Africa and in these drier climates are something that we're going to be looking to as we move into climate change. And so, and we dive deeper into it with, weird water shortages and things like that. We got to understand these things. And so I think that it's super important to understand that longer, wider history that has been broken up and disrupted uh, because of the American slave trade. Uh, So now kind of moving into, like I said, I'm trying to make this interesting and not go too deep into all of this stuff, but like we then can start looking at, okay, modern America particularly and how this now looks and how we kind of got there. So there's a few things that, and there's a lot, there's so much here, but I'm just going to go over some high points here because I think that they, they're really key. So when we began to move away, we began to move away from some of these practices that we knew when basically settlers came to America. And then, you know, when they're doing cash crops like cotton and utilizing and choosing to do free labor with slaves and, you know, all of that entailed with that, these things just kind of fell to the wayside. And a lot of people didn't, they grew home gardens, but it was different. I, From what I've been reading, it just had a different model to it. And then you kind of get into the industrial revolution and how we're like utilizing um, crops as a way to make money and supplying a stable food system on a more mass scale. And this is where 
it was really interesting. And people like Charles Darwin started to come into play in terms of like, he, he went and tried to prove more deeply that companion planting was a key piece to growing a healthy food system. And one of those things that he did was noting that particularly red clover, which a lot of fields would, would have like wild natural grasslands would have, they needed to be there in order to have, they were a massive aid to hay production particularly. And, and this is also why the wild bee population was incredibly important. Cause if we have pollinating clover, you know, within the fields, it pollinates the hay that is wind, you know, the whole deal. And so he saw this beautiful, you know, he was really good at seeing that cycle of nature and how it functioned. And so he tried to make a case that we need to think about integrating more plants into production. But the problem was, is that when we add in these large scale productions of utilizing machinery and things like that for harvesting, how do we dictate the difference between hay and red clover? And the value of those two things is very different. So he kind of got like pushed to the wayside and like great ideas, but sorry. So it then led us into a time where we cleared so many grasslands across the Great Plains and we started doing massive monocropping that was deteriorating the soil. And eventually we saw the Dust Bowl. And this started a conversation that since then we're still having <laughs> about how polyculture mold models and companion planting and creating more regenerative models that builds healthy soil is the best way to utilize the earth. And this goes all the way back to 12,000 years ago when we started domesticating plants. And now we're circling back to that. But one of the things in the home gardener world that really kind of shifted this conversation from like, you know, we had victory gardens and they were growing a certain way and a lot of victory garden plans, if you look them up, which are really fascinating and I highly suggest looking them up, they're road sort of traditional garden models, more or less. And and that's totally fine. Those work great too um, for some people, but this is where somebody... Um, that a lot of you messaged me about his stuff, but Mel Bartholomew developed the idea of square foot gardening. And a lot of you talk about square foot gardening and it's an amazing model. I highly suggest it to a lot of people, but you cannot grow with square foot modeling without understanding companion planting. It is almost impossible because you are doing interplanting close together, making the most of a small space and under the greater understanding of how plants communicate understands which plants to interplant in a square foot model together. So I always say like, this is one of those things that I think is amazing because now we're seeing the benefit of doing a square foot model, making the most of a small space and that it brings massive benefits and not just to getting higher yields and better food, but you're also deterring pests and you're welcoming the organic movement at the same time. Because if we are deterring pests naturally, we no longer need to use any pesticides at all. Natural, organic, none, it doesn't matter. You don't need them. And so this is where that organic movement coincides with companion planting now. So this is a very 
short, condensed, very like, (laughs) I wish I could dig in more, but I don't, I can, I can totally see how some people wouldn't find this fascinating for a long period of time. But I think it gives, this gives a really high level picture of how companion planting not only has been around for a long time, but it also continues to be this thing that we come back to in human culture of understanding creating a stable food system. And so that we need to think about how plants work in nature. And that's what companion planting is all about. So I hope that this is fascinating. And don't forget that you can learn more about this. I talk a little bit about history, but I talk a lot about how to use companion planting in the new e-course. So you can check it out. Don't forget it's in the show notes. It is awesome. I'm so pumped about it. And so many of you have already taking it and getting your reviews and conversations with you about this has just been really helpful. So thank you so much to those of you that have already purchased it. If you don't want the full course though, I have all the companion planting tools, including an amazing expanded uh, guide, expanded companion planting guide uh, within the ultimate garden resources. So that is at a lower price because all it is is basically the resources that I talk through and go through within the e-course. You, if you're a more intermediate, higher level gardener, these may be super helpful to get you going uh, in your planning this year. So you can also check that out in the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much. And next week will be our final final companion planting conversation. I cannot wait. Till then, I'll see you out there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.